0: Well, praise God. Good morning, church family. Good morning. Thank you. I want to say thank you on behalf of the pastoral staff for not just your gifts, more importantly, your prayers. Um, It's been so many seasons that I know I've walked through personally where people have come up to me and said, I'm praying for you, and you don't know the difference that that makes. Um, Believe God's called us to this, and it is rewarding, amen, when you operate in what God has called you to. And so, again, thank you. Um, We feel honored. We feel blessed uh, to pastor uh, such an amazing congregation. And so thank you. Praise God. I want to remind you all, uh, Christmas is coming soon. And so you see uh, these Operation Christmas Child boxes over here. Some of you already took those, don't use them as storage at home, fill them up, bring them back. If you haven't grabbed one, I encourage you to do that. Those are going to be due really soon, because we want to bless uh, the nations, we want to bless children around the globe, amen. Let me pray for us before we dig into the word today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, we thank you that it is living and active. Lord God, we thank you that you desire to speak to us, your people today. So Lord, we, we pray that as we open it, Lord God, that we would do so with reverency, that we do so with expectation. Lord, we pray that you would do something uh, in these moments in your word that would mark us, that would change us. We don't want to leave here the same way we came through the door, so Holy Spirit, would you do it by your power and your presence with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Acts chapter 18, if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. Uh, We're also going to have the scripture on the screens. It's been two weeks since we've been in this chapter, and so I I feel like I need to give you a little refresher uh, before we jump into the text today. Remember, at this point, we are following the second missionary journal journey of, of the Apostle Paul, and it's about to come to its end, in fact, right here in chapter 18. Two weeks ago, we saw that Paul had left Athens, and he went to Corinth, and we talked a little bit about how discouraged he must have been at that point in his journey, and that's not just conjecture. He writes about that later on in his letter to the Corinthians. But in the midst of how Paul was feeling, Jesus met him and provided encouragement for him. Aren't you thankful today for the encouragement of the Lord? In those seasons you walk through where God brings people, he brings circumstances to put courage back in us. That encouragement came for Paul through a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. They were believers in Jesus, but they were also tent makers. They worked in the same trade that, that Paul did, and so he had the opportunity to work with them and be encouraged by them. And then, of course, Silas and Timothy finally arrive from Macedonia, and they bring an offering and, which allows Paul to focus in on the ministry, and on top of all of this, uh, Paul is visited by Jesus in a vision where he's told that he should not be afraid, but he should keep on speaking, and he should not be silent. Jesus said to him, I have many people in this city. He's implying that there are still many people that he wants to touch and he wants to save in the city of Corinth. And so we can only assume that Paul is encouraged, okay? Courage is put back in him because he ends up staying there in Corinth longer than he stayed anywhere else at this, up until this point on the journey. He's there for 18 months teaching the word of God and this was so important because remember Corinth was at the crossroads of the trade the trade world right a, a strong church in Corinth would influence the whole region it was such a strategic location paul knew that the disciples there needed to be fully grounded to continue in the faith and so he was in Corinth they say it was probably between AD 50 and AD 52 right now how do we know that well in the year 852 AD something happened that actually changed the political landscape of Uchaya. There was a new governor that came to that region by the name of Galileo. He's mentioned there in verse 12 of our text. And because he's kind of the, the new kid on the block, the Jews, the synagogue rulers, decide to take advantage of that fact. At this point, again, Paul has been in Corinth for some time, he's been uh, teaching, he's been preaching the gospel, and the Jewish leaders there don't like it very much. And so they try to manipulate the government authority against Paul by using Gallio. But what we see is that their plan backfires on them. And so the Jews rise up against Paul and they bring him to the judgment seat. The Greek word there is bima. Maybe you've heard that before. The bima seat of of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ, right? In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul says that we will all one day stand before the bima seat of Jesus Christ. And and, and one day, we're all going to stand in that judgment seat, and we're going to have to be evaluated on our ministry, yes, on our life, on our faithfulness. And so they bring Paul to the judgment seat, and they say, this man is is persuading men to worship God contrary to the law. Now when Gallio hears the word law, understand he's a Roman official, so right away, he's thinking Roman law, he's not thinking Jewish law. And so these Jewish leaders are thinking, Jewish law, he hears Roman law. But once he figures out this has nothing to do with Roman law, he wants no part of it. He says, since this is a matter of questions about words and names and your law, you guys see to it yourselves. I'm not going to be judged. I'm not going to get involved. And I want to draw your attention to this before we get into our text for today in verse 18 for two reasons. Number one, remember when Jesus spoke to Paul, he said, I'm going to protect you, right? And no harm is going to come to you. And here's an example of how Jesus was protecting him. God actually uses Gallio to protect Paul when the charges come against him. Secondly, we see that the plot of the Jewish leaders actually backfires. Instead of punishing the apostle Paul, the Greeks take a man by the name of Sosthenes. I love that name. I, somebody needs to name their kid Sosthenes. I've never <laughs> seen a Sosthenes before. But he's, who is he? He's the ruler of the synagogue. And they beat him in front of the tribunal. And Gallio pays no attention. Now, this is very important because it sets a precedent for the Jews in their interaction with the believers going forward, that their case would not be heard before the Roman court. Again, they tried to manipulate him. They tried to manipulate Roman justice, but he wouldn't have any part of it. He had a good policy. It's a hands-off policy. He says, I'm the government. I'm the state. You're disputing about religious affairs. So in his mind, he's thinking, this is a separation of powers, a separation of church and state. Now, understand, when we talk about the idea of separation of church and state today, I think many of us, we have it backwards, okay? Um, That does not mean that the church should stay out of the political realm. No, this idea was actually set up to protect the church, to keep the government from coming and telling us how we should worship and when we should worship and when we can open our doors, right? And let me be clear, nowhere in the Bible does it say that the people of God should stay out of the political realm. Nowhere does it say we shouldn't mix religion and politics. In fact, Jeremiah 29.7, the Lord says to his people, he says, But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you in exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. If you look through the Old Testament during the time of the kings, we're continually told this king was a good king and God prospered Israel, or this king was a bad king and Israel saw the consequences of his evil leadership, right? And the people of God and the prophets especially called out the bad kings. Proverbs 29.2 tells us, When the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. Elijah, we know this, he confronted King Ahab. Nathan confronted David when he sinned. This idea that the church should keep silent when those in government act in evil ways is just insane. Esther risked her life to expose the plans of Haman, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel, all defied the orders of godless rulers. And remember what Peter said, we must obey God rather than man. And so, hear me, the idea that the church should stay out of politics is insane. The church needs to speak up. The church needs to speak truth. The church needs to call out evil when we see it. Now, why do I say that? Because many of you know we're coming up to a very important election. Just got real quiet in here. But let me just say this. As your pastor, I hope you get out and you vote. I hope you don't neglect that privilege that we have to, to be a part of what takes place in our... We have a say in, in who leads, right? I hope each and every one of you gets out and votes and that you do it with your Bibles open, that you support candidates that line up with the principles of God's word. Understand, unless Jesus is on the ballot... Yeah, come on. Unless Jesus is on the ballot, there is no perfect candidate. But there are those who line up with biblical principles who will stand for biblical principles... And there are those who don't. And so please, I'm just asking you, do your research, know who you're voting for, know what policies they stand on before you vote, and then get out there and be a part of it. Amen? Again, this whole idea of separation of church and state is not to keep the church out of the political sphere, but rather to keep government from legislating religious or religious practices from telling us how and when we can worship. And so Galileo says, man, this is separation of church and state. I don't have any jurisdiction over your laws. Those are your religious laws. You guys take care of that. And I love this because he's got this hands-off policy. I I think it's very important for justice to be done. Honestly, if Galileo was around today and he's running for office, I might vote for him, all right? (laughs) I like his policy. But here's the interesting thing. You'll hear the name of this uh, ruler of the synagogues again. Verse 1, 1 Corinthians, it says this. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ and our brother Sosthenes. So check this out. Remember two weeks ago we saw Crispus who was the ruler of the synagogue. He believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. He got saved and so apparently they put this guy Sosthenes in charge. Now he's the ruler of the synagogue and apparently he gets saved as well. Listen, when those who know the scripture the best end up turning to Christ, there's got to be something to the message, right? When those who know the prophecies of the Messiah the best say, well, he must be the Messiah, there's got to be something to the message. And so that's where we're at, Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 18. In our passage today, we're going to wrap up the, the second missionary journey of Paul and see the beginning of his third missionary journey. Let's look at it together. Acts 18, beginning in verse 18. It says this, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and he took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Chetre he cut his hair for he was under a vow and they came to Ephesus and he left them there but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period he declined but on taking leave of them he said I will return to you if God wills and he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. And after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Verse 24. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Though he knew only of the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross into Uchaya, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scripture that the christ was jesus may god bless the reading of his word today so we're told that paul stayed many days longer this is beyond the year and a half unlike other cities that he had visited before paul is not forced out of corinth he stays there for a good while and this fulfills the promise of jesus made to him in the vision right and all that while priscilla and aquila are with him apparently Paul develops this deep friendship, this partnership with this ministry couple, because they decide now to go with him as he heads east, and he begins his journey back to Jerusalem. And then the scripture tells us that Paul got a haircut. Now, when you read that, I hope you ask the question, what's that all about, right? When you come across stuff like that in scripture, you should ask, well, why why is this important? What do I need to know about this, right? Well, Paul had taken a vow that was almost certainly the vow of a Nazarite. The Nazarite vow was taken for a certain period of time and when it was completed the hair which had been allowed to grow freely it would be cut off and then it would be offered to the Lord at a special ceremony at the temple in Jerusalem. And really, the purpose of this vow was to express a consecration to God, to say, I'm going to abstain from any wine, I'm not going to cut my hair, That's a symbol of the vow, I'm never going to come near a dead body, those were all parts of that Nazarite vow. Now, the fact that Paul would take a vow like this shows that even though there was Jewish opposition to his preaching, he was in no way anti-Jewish. You see, I don't think Paul ever forgot that he was Jewish, that his Messiah was Jewish, and that Christianity at its core is Jewish, right? And even though Paul was very adamant that Jewish ceremonies and rituals should not be required of Gentiles in order to be saved, he sees nothing wrong with Jewish believers like himself who wish to observe ceremonies, especially if they see the fulfillment of those ceremonies in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? William Barclay in his commentary says about this vow, he says, No doubt Paul was thinking of all God's goodness to him in Corinth, and he took this vow to show his gratitude. But I also think this, that given the worldliness of, of Corinth, this vow made sense for Paul. Uh, Again, he's in a very godless culture, and so for him to say, I'm going to be set apart, I'm going to live differently for the sake of the gospel, that just makes sense. And so he cuts his hair there at this port city. Where is that? If we have the map, I want you to see uh, where we are on the journey here, okay? We're following him along. He goes from Athens all the way to the left, if you look at Uchaya, From Athens to Corinth to Kentre, and that's where he's going to catch a ship from there, that's gonna sail to Ephesus. And when you talk about finding uh, a, a common route, that was a common trade route, many boats that would go that way. And so he gets on the boat with Priscilla and Aquila, and they head to Ephesus. Now, I want you to remember, this is where Paul wanted to preach some two years earlier, but the Holy Spirit had prevented him from doing so, right? But now the Holy Spirit gives him direction to go to this important city. Understand, church, God has a timing for everything in our lives right? If Paul could have discerned it earlier, the Holy Spirit wasn't really saying no, he was saying wait. (laughs) There's a time for that, Paul. Sometimes God says wait. Can I just say he always knows what he's doing when he says wait. (laughs) And so he goes into the synagogue and he, he reasons with the Jews and even though this was the pattern in every city he went to, the response in Ephesus is totally different. They, they don't kick him out of the synagogue. They don't come against him. Instead, they say, wow, Paul, what you're sharing is amazing. Could you stay a little bit longer? We really want to hear more. But Paul declines the invitation because he can't stay long in Ephesus. He, he wants to get to the feast in Jerusalem. He wants to present the offering of his Nazarite vow at the Jerusalem in the, during the feast, right? And so he says, I'm going to return to you. And here's some important words, three important words, if God wills obviously paul would like to stay longer i mean now there's there's a receptivity to the gospel people aren't stoning him this is a good place to be right but he says i'll come back to you i i love this if god wills we should all live our life with that understanding if god wills paul had certain desires in his heart you may have certain desires in your heart today but i hope you know it's the will of god that prevails And and so he says, if God allows it, I'm going to see you guys again. But here's the blessing. Look at this. Even though Paul could not stay and teach, remember, there's this great ministry couple with him. And so he leaves them behind, and he says, you guys continue the work here. I need to go and report to the church in Antioch. And so Paul sets sail, and he goes to Caesarea, and from there, he went up and was greeted by the church. Now, when you read that, he went up. Here's what it means. He went to Jerusalem, okay? If you want to immigrate to Israel today, you would use the term that literally means going up. It's a Hebrew word, aliyah, which means to ascend or to go up. And so when you tell a Jew, I'm going up, what that means is you're going to Israel, or more specifically, you're going to Jerusalem. This is for a couple of reasons. First of all, Jerusalem itself is 2,600 feet above sea level. And usually from any other environment around Jerusalem, you have to ascend to get it. You are climbing the hill, you're ascending... That's why in the Old Testament you have the Psalms of Ascent, right? If you've read in the Psalms, Psalms of Ascent are Psalms written as you climb the hill toward Jerusalem. You ascend upward. You're literally ascending. You're going up to Jerusalem. But more than that, the Jewish person will tell you that whenever you go to Jerusalem, you're always moving up in life. Spiritually speaking, generally speaking, emotionally speaking, you're going up. You're improving your life. And so when you see those words, he went up, they're synonymous with he went to Jerusalem. And in just a little over a week, a number of us, were going up. We're going to have the privilege to travel to Israel, and we're going to go up to Jerusalem. And so he goes up to Jerusalem. He fulfills his Nazarite vow in the temple. And then he leaves, and he goes down to his home church in Syrian Antioch. Remember, it's been a while since he's seen these guys. It's probably about three years at this point. And so he gives a report. He shares what God is doing. Can you imagine the stories that he would tell of all that was taking place, how these rulers of the synagogue are responding to the gospel and and they're getting saved? What an encouragement that must have been to the church. And then verse 23 begins Paul's third missionary journey. After spending some time in Antioch, we don't know how long that was exactly, but Paul, he can't sit still. He's on the move again. And the focus of, of this third trip is to go and to strengthen the disciples. And so he goes back to the churches that were already founded on the, the previous mini- missionary trips. I'm sure he would have gone to the congregation in Tarsus, in Lystra, Iconium, Pisidian, Antioch. You see, Paul had a passion for discipleship. He, he didn't want to just make converts. I'm sure he would go to these churches and he would look at the church and look at the strength of the disciples and say, man, how can I strengthen this church and how can I help them walk with Jesus? That's the purpose of every letter that he writes to these churches, right? How can I encourage them? How can I strengthen them in their walk with Jesus? Because the reality is it's not enough to just have a strong beginning with Jesus. We need to keep on growing, don't we? We need to keep on growing in that relationship. We need to continue to grow in the strength of that relationship. Paul was a big discipleship guy, and I love that about him. It really goes back to the mission of our church. We said Grace Point exists to make fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Because we believe that a relationship with Jesus is about more than just fire insurance. Are you with me today? It's about more than just a ticket to heaven. Yes, when we come to Christ, we're saved, we're justified by the work of Jesus on the cross. We're made right with God. We're brought into a relationship with him. But then he begins another work in our life, and it's the work of sanctification. And I'm so thankful today that he who began a good work in me and began a good work in you, amen, he's faithful to bring it to completion. That's the work of sanctification. And hear me, that work continues until the day he calls us home and glorifies us. We have to realize that, church, that none of us in this room have arrived, right? He's still working on us. I may not be where I want to be, but I thank God I'm not where I used to be. Amen? God is changing me. He's sanctifying me. He's making us look more and more like Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit at work in us. And so we need to be discipled. We need to grow in our relationship with the Lord. We need to grow in our understanding of who he is. We need to continually submit our lives to him and, and, and live like this in fellowship with one another where we can be encouraged. And, and so Paul's continuing, get this, Paul's now going up and he's continuing the work in Galatia and Phrygia. And then verse 24, the camera pans back down to Ephesus. Verse 24 tells us, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man He was competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Though he only knew only the baptism of John. So this guy, Apollos, he's he's a very interesting character that we're introduced to here. Apollos is, is likely an abbreviated name. His full name would be Apollonius, which means a follower of Apollo. If you know your Greek mythology, who was Apollo? He was a Greek god. He was the son of Zeus, right? Some of you know that, right? And so Apollonius is a a, a Jewish man with a very pagan name, a Greek name, which means he's a Hellenistic Jew. He's a Jew with Greek influence. And it tells us there, very importantly, that he's from Alexandria, Egypt. Now, when you hear someone is from Alexandria in this time, it is a symbol of status. It's like saying this guy's from an Ivy League school. He, He knows his stuff, right? Because Alexandria, Egypt, was the the second largest city in the Roman Empire in New Testament times. It was a huge city, population about 700,000, and a third of that population was Jewish. Alexandria was founded by who? Anyone want to take a guess? Sounds a lot like the name. Alexander the Great, right? 332 BC, Alexander the Great founded the city of Alexandria. And so this was a very progressive Greek city with a large Jewish population, so large that Jews would often take refuge there. Jesus lived there for a time, right? When Mary and Joseph fled from Herod and they go down to Egypt, where did they go in Egypt? It was most certainly Alexandria. And so there were synagogues in every part of this ancient city. It was also a place of great intellectual wealth. The largest library in the ancient world was located in Alexandria, right? If you love books, this is where you would want to be. We're told by historians that the library there had 700,000 volumes, quite a feat for that day. But look at what this passage tells us about this man, Apollos. It says he was an eloquent man, He was competent in the scripture and he was fervent in spirit. What a combination that is. Listen, there are some people that are very eloquent. They can speak so well that they can sell you anything, right? Like even if they don't know what they're talking about, they sound so good, right? I'm like, sign me up, right? It just sounds good, right? But not only was... Apollos eloquent, he was competent in the scripture. And when we use the word scripture here, we're talking about the Old Testament, okay? He was very familiar with the Old Testament. I'm sure he was very familiar with the prophecies of the Messiah. And we're also told this: that he was fervent in spirit. In other words, this man was on fire. He had he had a passion for the things of God. Again, what a combination. He's eloquent. He's confident, confident in the word of God, and he's on fire in his spirit. This guy had it all together. I bet he was good looking too, right? <laughs> and you can look at someone like this, and you can say, well, I can see how God could use him, but how can God use me? But I want to tell you at least two of those things, if not all three, are available to you as well. There are ways to learn to be more eloquent or competent in your speech. All of us, though, should be competent in the word of God. And if we're not, then we can just give ourselves to the study of the word of God more. It's not enough to say, well, I don't really read, I, I don't know, or I don't understand the word of God. Listen, most of you probably have three or four Bibles in your house. I know you do. You got two or three sitting in your car, right? We have multiple apps on our phone where we can read the Bible or actually even have the Bible read to us. There is no reason why in this day and age in America, someone can't be confident, confident in the scripture Here's the key, if they want to be. The key's desire. How much do you want to know and understand the word of God? But look at that last description because it's so important. We're told that he was fervent in spirit. So it literally means he was about to boil in his spirit. It's this idea that he was bubbling over with enthusiasm about the things of God. And it seems that Apollos was kind of a missionary who was, who was called by God. In the text, we don't see anything about a congregation sending him out. He's not an apostle that's sent out. We're just told he simply came to Ephesus. But he knew only the baptism of John. See, at this point, the work of John the Baptist was widely known throughout the Jews of the Roman Empire. It had reached even as far as Alexandria. And so what does it mean that he knew only the baptism of John? It likely means that he preached that Messiah had come, and so therefore, we need to repent and we need to respond to Jesus. At the same time, I think he had very little knowledge of the full person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so with this passion, with this fervor, he begins to speak boldly in the synagogue. He didn't know too much about Jesus, but what he did know, he taught accurately and he taught it with passion. And here's what this shows us, that we don't need to wait till we get a PhD, church, and We don't need to wait until we fully understand the book of Revelation and all its complexity. Some of you are trying, still trying to figure that out, all right? That's good, that's good. But in the meantime, teach what you know. Share it accurately, share it with passion, right? This man has such a fervor to teach what he knows. What about you? See, it's not just that he had the skill to speak eloquently. He had this deep conviction, i got to go into the synagogues and i got to open my mouth because I see in the word of God that Jesus is that promised Messiah, and I can't keep quiet about it. And and so Aquila and Priscilla, get this, they're, they're in the synagogue, and they hear this man speak, and they're astounded. They're like, wow, this guy, this guy's amazing. But at the same time, they realize there's some gaps in his understanding of who Jesus is. And so they do something about it. And listen to me. This is something that's so valuable to the kingdom of God. They they take a man who has a passion for God. He's, he's got a gifting. They recognize that gifting. And at the same time, they say, well, he's got limited knowledge. And so they take him under their wing, and they explain things more accurately. And I love the way they do this. They don't confront him publicly. Like, they don't shout him out in the synagogue, right? That's wrong. No. They don't say, uh, they, they say, Apollos, Apollos, can, can we teach you a little something? They take him aside, and they help him in his understanding of who Jesus is. And, and what's so amazing is that as eloquent and learned as Apollos was, evidently he was also a humble man because he's teachable. And so he allows Priscilla and Aquila to pour into his life. And then the church in Ephesus gives him a letter of reference, and he goes back, where Where does he go? He goes back to Achaia. Which probably means he goes back to the city of Corinth. And when he arrives there, the believers in Corinth, he, he helps them out. He continues to refute the Jews in public and show by the word of God, again, by the scripture, that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the Christ. Apparently, this man Apollos has a tremendous ministry in Corinth. Paul would write later on in 1 Corinthians that Apollos is the one who watered what Paul had planted. Isn't it amazing though, when you look at this, to see the hand of God in all of this? Because the Apostle Paul, he can't do it all. I mean, he's an amazing man. He's got the power of the Holy Spirit working through him, he's anointed for ministry. But here's the truth he's not God, (laughs) and so he's not omnipresent. He can't stay in Corinth and then be in Ephesus and go to Antioch and to Galatia all at the same time. But listen to me, while he's ministering in Galatia and Phrygia, God has raised up a ministry couple to be there in Ephesus. And that ministry couple invested into this man, Apollos, who then goes back to the work in Corinth and he strengthens the church there. And Apollos, can I just say, he was the perfect man for the job. Again, he's Jewish, he's eloquent, he's fervent, and so we're told that he vigorously refuted the Jews. That he's able to take them to the scripture and say, let me show you why I believe that Jesus is the Christ. And it's because of this, actually, that many scholars believe that Apollos is the one who wrote the book of Hebrews. Some try to credit it to Paul, but when you look at the Greek there, the Greek that's used is a much more eloquent Greek. It's a much more complex Greek, likely written by a very educated man, likely written by a man who was privileged to live and learn in the city of Alexandria, an eloquent man, a man mighty in the scripture and fervent in the spirit. Now, I can't prove it, but I tend to think that Apollos is the one who wrote the book of Hebrews. But here's what I want you to see, church, as we close today, as the worship team comes. And you can see it in the life of the Apostle Paul. You can see it in the mighty ministry of Aquila and Priscilla. You can see it in the life of Apollos, and it's this that if your life is submitted to Christ, if you spend time in his word, if you desire to do his will, that he will use your life, that he'll use the giftings that he's given you for his glory and his honor. But here's two very important things that I would encourage you to commit to today. Number one is the study of the word of God, to open this book and, and, and to know this book, to spend time in the pages of this book. Sadly, many Christians today don't know the Word of God, and, and part of that's the fault of the church. I think too many churches, you skip around and we go two verses in the Old Testament, four verses in the New Testament, we're all over the place sometimes, right? And so many people don't have this whole understanding of, of, the, of the Scripture, right? And many churches don't preach chapter by chapter or line by line. They don't exegete the Scripture, and so people don't have an understanding of, of the whole story. But I say part of this is the fault of the church. But it's also the fault of many believers to never open the word of God and never crack the Bible during the week. And so I want to challenge you. Because we all have the potential to be like Apollos, every one of us. In that we can be mighty in the scriptures. We can learn and understand the word of God. There are more tools at your disposal today than any other time in history. So I want to challenge you, church, use them. Use them. Listen to the Word of God as you drive. Read the Word as as you're sitting, right? It's there. You have it. I know you do. If you've got Facebook, you've got Instagram, you've got the Word of God. Secondly, I want to encourage you with this. Be fervent in spirit. Would you stand with me today? I fully believe this, that in this season that we're in especially, now more than ever, like Apollos, we should be burning hot. We should be on fire for the things of God. Hear me, it doesn't matter what your gift is. You may not be eloquent like Apollos. At this point, you may say, I'm not yet competent in the scripture. It doesn't matter. You can still be on fire for God. Paul wrote to the church in Rome. He, look at this, Romans 12, 11, He says, do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Don't lack zeal, but keep that, that boiling point. Keep that fervency in the spirit. Keep that alive in your walk with the Lord. If you look at that word slothful, Paul is really telling the church, church, don't be lazy. <laughs> Put in the hard work. See, what he's addressing in our lives is this natural tendency that we have, right, to, to back off in our walk with the Lord. Some of you are, are young enough in the Lord that you remember what it was like when you first got saved. You remember how hungry you were for the word of God, Remember how you could have stopped sharing it with anybody who would listen. But then what happens? Well, life kind of crowds back in. That happens to all of us. And we all have those times in our lives when we back away from the things of God and we allow that fire to cool. Why do you think Paul is writing this to the Romans? He's saying, be careful this doesn't happen to you (laughs) because it's an important reminder that we all need, don't we? We need to be reminded of this we should not let that fire die that passion for the things of God die in our lives but here's the reality you you need to know what causes you to back off in your walk with God for me it's distractions i can just get distracted sometimes there's so many things going on and now i'm so distracted that i'm not in the word and i'm not in prayer but you need to know this you need to know today what wars against you staying on fire for the lord because we all have our own things, right? We all have our own things that would draw us away and, and, and rob us of that time with God. And before we know it, the fire has died down. And before we know it, we're not really pursuing the Lord with a passion or a verve. Or, and, and, and maybe you would say today, well, Pastor, I'm good. I'm not cold. But you also realize you're not where you were before. Paul wrote to Timothy. He said, I want to remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. Why do you say fan into flame? Because obviously, for Timothy, it needed to be fanned into flame. Let's be honest today. We all need to fan into flame the gifting and the calling of God on our lives. Whatever your gifting is, use it for the Lord. (laughs) Whatever your gifting is, use it for the Lord and don't be lacking in zeal. Don't be lazy. Don't back off. Keep your spiritual fervor for the Lord. Fan it into flame. One thing we know about Apollos is this. He was on fire for God. And I pray at the end of my life that it would be known for the same thing. How about you? That there was a fire. That that there there was a passion for the things of God. And so as we close, heads bowed around this room. I want to challenge you today to make a commitment, to not just be inspired, but to make a commitment. Let that be your commitment today that you would spend time in the word of God, that you would say, God, I want to be competent in the scripture and ask the Holy Spirit, even right now, Holy Spirit, would you fan into flame that passion for you once again? Listen to me, church, don't live content with commonplace religion, (laughs) because every day you're either getting nearer to God or you're drifting further from him. And today, if you've lost that fervor for the things of God, you can ask him. He desires to renew that passion in you. As we close today, these altars are open. If you need to step out and you just need to get on your face before the Lord, you need to ask him. Listen to me. When we talk about praying in accordance with God's will, this is his will for your life. If you would pray in that way, he would answer. So these altars are open as we close today. If you need to move out and you just need to get before the Lord, whatever you need to do, just ask him. Let that be your prayer. Say, God, give me a passion. Give me a a fire. Give me a desire to be in your word and make me a man or woman who's on fire for the things of God. As we close, let that be your prayer today.